So I might raise that a fraction. Does it come up? It doesn't, don't worry. <laughs> Maybe your hand, ah, that's strength. Yeah, that's good, thanks. Uh, look, it's so good to be with you. This um, little church has been close to our heart for many, many years, and uh, it's lovely to come and come and visit. We're very uh, sorry to hear of Stephen's departure, and um, just follow him prayerfully and uh, pray that God will restore him and um, get him ready for the next uh, chapter of his work, whatever that might be. Well, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the music, the singing we've been doing. Um, and thank you that you are here uh, according to your promise. Please, um, Lord, may my words uh, be your words. And may what happens in each of our minds and hearts and lives be something that um, carries us on into eternity, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in 1755, does that date mean anything to anyone? 1755? It's a very important date in the history of this world. Well, in 1755, an earthquake destroyed the city of Lisbon, killing between 30 and 50,000 people. And Europe was never the same afterwards. The scale of suffering was immense. Uh, Tom Wright, in his uh, Gifford Lectures, which was published as um, a book with the title History and Eschatology, he says that this was the beginning in Europe of an intellectual revolt against the idea of a, living God, of a, a loving God. A loving God would not allow such suffering. Well, Christian philosophers went into action um, trying to prove that, or trying to clear God's name, <laughs> prove that we live in the best of all possible worlds or something or other. Uh, but many thinkers were enraged. They were enraged by what had happened. They were also enraged by people's attempts to explain it away. French philosopher Voltaire wrote a poem titled, well, it was in French, but in English, Poem on the Lisbon Disaster, ridiculing the attempts to explain it away. And can you then impute a sinful deed to babes who on their mother's bosoms bleed? Was then more vice in fallen Lisbon found than Paris where voluptuous joys abound? Was less debauchery to London known, where opulence luxurious holds the throne? And uh, it went on like that for 186 verses. So Wright says that as a result of that earthquake, um, the view of the West is what he calls Epicurean. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher 400 years before Jesus who said that everything was just random, accidental. Uh, he didn't deny the existence of the gods, but he said that they had no interest in our world. They had their own issues to deal with. 
So we are on our own. Uh, and the only rational philosophy of life is to seek happiness. And uh, that is the philosophy that rules the modern world. Uh, right is correct. It's dressed up in a garb of science, but there's nothing scientific about it. It's, it goes back 2,400 years. So when we awoke from the news from Turkey of an earthquake greater than anything in their history, and to the increasing body count and pictures of collapsed towns and rescue workers and the freezing cold of baby uh, drawn out, still attached by its umbilical cord to its dead mother. Well, I don't know how it affected you, but yeah, I was devastated and couldn't stop asking God, what are you doing? And then, of course, always behind that is this taunt of the new atheists, is he real, is he real? There was a, a man um, on a uh, platform in Sydney railway station. Um, well, there was a clergyman there dressed in his clerical garb and this chap yelled out, this was the time of the Bali bombing, uh, where was God, eh? Uh, where was he in Bali? And the knockdown argument of the new atheists, indeed of all atheists at all times, is that there's too much evil and suffering in the world um, to be able to believe that God is real. How could a God who is all-powerful and good allow suffering and evil on the scale we experience in our world? Well, the answer begins... Um, with a man on the cross, but I'm not going there this morning. Um, you know, whenever there's big suffering, uh, whether it affects you and your family, your friends in your life, or whether it's something we see on the TV screen, um, when it's near and when it's, well, still unfolding as it is in Turkey, the worst thing you can do when people are suffering is to try and explain it away or to try and justify God in some sort of way. Um, if anyone can do that, it's got to be God himself. The call at a time like this is not to jump to God's side and to his defence, but to jump in the other direction, um, to jump in the direction of those who are suffering and to kind of understand our solidarity as a human race. Um, and uh, God has always been the enemy of the human race, you know. Um, we have our plans and hopes and dreams and, and God doesn't always go along with them. He sometimes does shocking things. Um, and, um, yeah... He, he, he is our great enemy. I think one of the reasons why the attempt of scholars to justify uh, God at the time of the Lisbon disaster, um, there are probably many reasons, but uh, one was that they had lost touch with the God of the Bible. 
When you go to the Bible to find an answer to suffering, uh, well, the one thing you don't find is God justifying himself. <laughs> um, he is God, and he does as he pleases. Um, we are not God. We just have to suck it up or destroy ourselves in futile rebellion. As I say, God has always been the chief enemy of mankind. So why do we call God good? Well, we call him good because he calls himself good. He says so. Um, and of course also because of the man on the cross and uh, also because he promises that a time will come when everything will be clear. 1972, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book titled He is There and He is Not Silent. Um, I'm thinking this morning I want to talk on the subject He is There and He is Good. <laughs> and uh, my text is Acts chapter 14, um, which we read, an incident that took place in the small city of Lystra. Uh, very close, I checked this on a map, very close to the epicentre of the first shock that hit Turkey on Monday, very late at night. Um, the area experienced another shock yesterday, uh, happily not like the big one. But let me take you back to the year 47, 17 years after Jesus died and resurrected. Two missionaries visit the town and hear of, heal a paraplegic. Causes a stir, leads to a level of misunderstanding. The locals think they must be gods and prepare to offer them sacrifice. Because of the language problem, it takes the missionaries a while to wake up to what is going on. And so what we see next is the collision of two different understandings of the world. The worldview of paganism and the worldview of Judaism, uh, and now Christianity, six centuries later, became the, the worldview of Islam as well. So pagans believe in many gods or spirits. Uh, different parts of the world and different aspects of life are controlled by different gods. There's a god of love, a god of war, a god of the harvest, a god of the ocean. There's a woggle looking after the Swan River and so on. Uh, and most of these gods are not particularly interested in human beings. Certainly not in our happiness. Uh, but you can very easily offend them. And in a pagan system, uh, there's, well, there's no difficulty accounting for evil. Uh, you've probably upset one of the gods. Lorraine and I lived in India for a while, and you could see it. Uh, you know, where there's a lot of gods, which one are you going to worship? And if you worship this one, are you going to upset that one? Uh, well, Christians and Jews and Muslims believe that there's one God who created the universe and everything in it. It's a worldview that makes, harm, makes sense of the harmony and rationality of the universe. It makes science possible. Uh, and the main alternative today, there's still a lot of paganism around, um, and not so much Christianity, <laughs> but uh, the main... Uh, Alternative today is that there's no God at all. The uh, belief of atheism, or new atheism, secular materialism, 
Lawrence Krauss a few years ago debating in Perth Town Hall joked, said people used to believe in many gods, uh, then they believed in one god, and now we believe in no god. Ha ha ha. Um, but there's an infinite difference between one and none, and a joke doesn't settle it. Uh, one god explains the existence of the universe, its harmony, its laws. No God explains nothing except the prevalence of evil and suffering. Now, one of the practical issues involved in all this is whom do you thank? Well, many Australians have stopped believing in God, uh, or they don't think is important. Um, we organised a Thanksgiving service in Geraldton uh, the year before last, the Midwest had its, its uh, a bumper harvest, its best harvest ever. And we thought, all right, Thanksgiving Sunday, this is a good time to organise a Thanksgiving service. We, we uh, advertised it fairly widely, but not very many people came. So whom do you thank if there's no God? And the answer is... For many in Australia, it seems to be that you don't thank anybody. Uh, you, you just um, bellyache about everything and anything. And those who do feel thankful give their praise to nature that they spell with a capital N, call it Mother Nature. Well, our missionaries would have been just as horrified with that as they were of the idol worship of Lister. It amounts to worshipping the creation rather than the creator. It robs God of his honour. It's the essence of idolatry. So again, if you ask atheists why they don't believe in God, they'll tell you either that there's no evidence, there's actually plenty of evidence, or that there's too much suffering. Um, and that is a very good argument. We're feeling the strength of it right now. Anyway, Paul's answer to these idol worshippers and also to the atheists of today um, is that God has given himself a witness. And uh, the reading says that he's given rains and fruitful seasons doing good and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So that's how it is most of the time. Most days we don't go hungry. Most days the sun comes out. Most seasons the rain comes down, sometimes more than we want, but um, basically God looks after us. Well, how is that an argument for people who believe in many gods? Aren't their gods generous too? Well, the answer is that some of them are, but most of them aren't. Um, polytheism arises from the uncertainties and sufferings of life. People are afraid of the harm that evil spirits or angry gods may do to them, and they seek to appease them. Uh, those who worship many gods are usually driven by fear, not love. You know, Thailand is... A Buddhist country, but um, most of the people also worship various gods and spirits, and they fear them. One one Thai lady uh, was asked, "Do you have a good god?" And she said, "Of course, but we don't worship him. He wouldn't hurt us." 
Um, and Paul is saying that the amount of good in the world shows us that the world is in the hands of a good God. And it's worth thinking about that argument today. Of course, he's perfectly aware that there's a lot of evil and suffering. You know, just 30 years back, back 30 years back from that time, I'm talking about uh, AD 17, uh, Jesus would have been 21, I guess, uh, when Turkey was devastated by an earthquake which Pliny the Elder describes as the worst in human history. Wiped out five big cities in the, in the country that we call Turkey today. And from start to finish, the Bible is about how God will finally deal with evil and suffering. So Paul is obviously aware of suffering and evil. He must be saying that there's more good than can be accounted for if there's no God. God likes to give us good things, even to people who don't believe in him. Well, the atheist thinks there's too much suffering and that rules God out, but Paul says there's a lot more good than bad and that rules God in. Well, is it true what he's saying? Scott Peck was an American psychiatrist and in his book The Road Less Travelled, he says that the thing that brought him from uh, not believing in God to Christianity was the huge preponderance of grace in the world. He, one, one example he gives, he notes how most of us carry around in us bacteria of serious illnesses, which, like meningitis, that could easily wipe us out, but they don't. I, I was reading up in, uh, I wanted to get rid of some asbestos from a bathroom a few years ago, and I was reading up on it, and whether I could do it myself, and, uh, and I read this study. It was a study from America of people who lived in a place where there was no asbestos, and uh, everyone had an average of at least a thousand um, blue asbestos hair in their lungs. <laughs> These were people who weren't working in factories or anything, or in a, and um, and we're told that you know just one of those can wipe you out with mesothelioma, but for most of us, we've got it, but it doesn't. So Scott Peck says that eventually, as a doctor, that kind of overwhelmed him. He became a believer. Um, it's, it's worth thinking about, you know, things like this, things that shouldn't be but are. If everything evolved by accident, there should be much less good. Uh, that's what I believe and I'm convinced of. For example, uh, one thing that convinces me, um, why, should we, why should we have evolved to be pain-free uh, in our normal state? Uh, there's no, I mean, pain, pain is good. <laughs> We need it. It's, it's, part of, uh, um, it's part of our survival, for sure. But why should we have evolved to be pain-free in our normal state? There's no reason why natural selection would eliminate chronic pain. Um, in our natural state, we're hardly conscious of our bodies. 
When we feel pain, we know something's wrong. We can trace the cause and we're often able to fix it. And even if we can't, we know that it's not normal. There is an explanation and probably a cure, even if we don't know what it is. Pain and unhappiness are a result of disorder. They are not the way God has made things. The body in its normal state seems like it was designed for happiness. The whole of modern medicine stands on this foundation, which only makes sense if God is real. So there's a witness, you see. Uh, and there are many witnesses that God is real and that he is good. You know, you walk past the school playground out here when the kids are out playing, um, and there'll be an awful racket going on. Uh, and if you see a child on its own crying, you know something is wrong. Fix it up, and he or she will be back amongst the kids happy again. Happiness is the default state of children. When the baby cries, usually you know something is wrong and hopefully you can fix it up. Now that only makes sense if God is real and good. Uh, evil and suffering are horribly real. And if God has allowed it, he has some explaining to do. But it's important to see that these things are not his original design. They're invaders. They're in spoilers of a good creation. Well, that's the Bible's teaching and it's how we experience things. Evolution says that suffering is normal and will increase until we're all extinct. But in fact, there's much more good than evil and therefore we should believe in God and thank him and want to know him. That's the first thing we learn from our reading, but the reading goes on. The people of Lystra are also given a remarkable miracle. Paraplegic, plenty of them back then, walking around. Rain and I were in India in uh, 1986, I think it was. I got to preach in an orphanage of girls, 300 girls in front of me, and uh, I asked them what they thought would be the, would most frighten a foreigner coming to India for the first time. Well, they looked at each other and tried to work it out, and uh, I said, "Well, it's the beggars." Well, you should have heard the laughter. The very idea that anybody would be frightened of a beggar <laughs> to an Indian girl. But, um, you know, limbless paraplegics dragging themselves across the footpath begging for money scared the wits out of me. Um, and how I would have loved to have been able to heal them. Uh, we had a, when I was teaching in Cape Town, um, Jeremiah was a polio victim from Central Africa. He came to study at GWC. He hopped around with the help of a pole that had chopped out of the bush. Um, one foot, this foot, was placed backwards and just hung by his side. Um, and one of his classmates took him to an orthopedic surgeon and the doctor said he could fix him up and the classmate offered to pay. And, uh, but then, he actually was an Australian, he left and returned to Australia. I had to take him to Kruderskill Hospital for his pre-op. And the professor, who was a big man, just lifted him up and sat him on a table like he was a chunk of meat and um, explained to the room full of students how he would operate and turn the leg around and straighten it up. And one of the students said, no, it won't work. 
Well, the professor wasn't used to being contradicted. <laughs> he, was, he was angry. Why not, he said. Well, the student said, because the muscles have wasted away and will never grow back again. And they classed, discussed it amongst themselves and they agreed and the operation was off. Well, the chap that Paul and Barnabas met in Lister had been lame from birth. His muscles were beyond recovery, even with today's medical know-how. So it was an unmistakable miracle. Uh, when he stood up and walked and the locals got very excited, they figured Paul and Barnabas must be gods. There's an ancient myth about that part of the world. We're in Galatia now, the um, eastern part of Turkey. Um, well, the middle of Turkey almost. The Roman poet Virgil tells how two of the gods, Zeus and Hermes, disguised themselves as humans and visited the area looking for hospitality. Well, they got the cold shoulder from everyone except a poor old uh, couple, poor couple, took them in, shared with them what they had. Well, their shack was miraculously transformed into a temple of Zeus and the unfriendly town sank into the swamp. And the locals weren't going to make that mistake again. Uh, so the priest of Zeus came out to offer them sacrifices. And so now you've got this collision of worldviews that I spoke about. The community has just experienced a great good. They want to acknowledge it. Um, but they do not know the real giver. They're confused. And their benefactors are saying that they must give up their idolatrous beliefs and worship the living and true God who made the world and everything in it. Well, that caused a division. Some believed, some didn't. Eventually it turned violent. Well, Paul did many miracles in the name of Jesus. Jesus had done hundreds more. Uh, even a non-Christian historian, Morton Smith, thinks that he must have because he can't see why anybody followed him if it wasn't for the miracles. Uh, and he concludes in the end that Jesus must have been a sorcerer. That's a strange conclusion for a modern historian <laughs> to come to. Of course, there were sorcerers around in those days. That's how the Jews explained him at the time. But there's a difference between what Jesus did and what the ancient sorcerers were said to do. Jesus never did anything to harm anyone. All his miracles were to help and to heal. Sorcerers were feared as Sangomas today are in Africa, people believe that if you have magical powers, you'll use them to hurt people who upset you. That's another reason why Christians believe that God is good. When, when God came into the world as a human being, he only did good, even to those who wanted to kill him. Jesus' miracles were also meaningful. He said that he'd come on a mission to establish the kingdom of God. That meant getting rid of all the evil and suffering that invaded God's good creation and making sure that it stayed good forever. And that's what Jesus promised to do, said he'd come to do and promises that he will eventually complete the job. Um, and... Uh, Believing that, well, it's a, big, it's a big ask, but that's what faith is all about. It's like God's creation has been twisted out of shape. Evil has attacked and deformed it, like a person whose body has been crippled and misshapen. Jesus' mission was restoration. 
And many of his miracles involve restoring misshapen bodies. He promises healing. He promises new bodies in a renewed world to everyone who will trust and follow him. And he put his money where his mouth was. Uh, he showed that he actually had the power to do what he promised. There's a bigger problem than deformity and disease, and that is death itself, of course. We all must die. The death toll in Turkey is now over 20,000, and we're shocked, and we should be. And we should be trying to help. But we shouldn't overlook the fact that everyone dies sooner or later and that you and I also will die. So if God has some explaining to do, it's not just the earthquake. I said earlier that our answer to the problem of suffering begins with a man on a cross. Jesus died under horrible circumstances it's great humiliation and pain. He was God's son, yet God did nothing. So he hung there. And then God raised him from the dead. And it's this collision of death and resurrection in the person of Jesus that gives us hope that death is not absolute. It's met its master. If he restored the body of cripples, raised dead people to life again, if he died himself and rose again, and his promise of the kingdom of God is not just wishful thinking. Not just wishful thinking. Well, summing up, we believe that God is good because we experience so much good. We believe that he's good because our default state is pain-free happiness. We hang on to our faith when disaster strikes believing that such things are intruders and not natural. We believe God is good because when he appeared as a human being, he did good, he was good, truly good, and he led the way through death and promises us a good future. He invites us to enter his kingdom now and promises us restored bodies when he comes to make all things new. So what are we to make of all that? Well, if it's a story, all just a story, then we need to know that we're all on the way down. There is no hope except the temporary artificial hopes you may conjure up for yourself, affluence if you're lucky, um, peace of mind if you can, if you can. pursuit of happiness. <laughs> I have to tell you, you know, Australia is the... Uh, is the model case of the pursuit of happiness and a lot of people who are doing it are not finding it. Um, perhaps you can latch on to some great cause to keep your mind away from the dying that one day will claim us all. But if Jesus was for real, then death is not the all-powerful grim reaper. He defeated death and goodness has a future. And so do you if you throw your lot in with him. Lord, uh, thank you for Jesus. Uh, thank you for your, well, for, for your creation. Uh, for giving us this world, giving us a, a share of this world. So much, Lord, we look around is good. And uh, we see the evil. We see the tragedies and the disasters. We long that it might not be so. We long, Lord, for the time when your work will be complete and 
these things will be no more. Renew our trust in you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.